Amen. You may be seated. I have a confession to make. It was a couple of years ago. We were in an elders meeting. And my dad used to make up books of the Bible. And he would say, hey, this is written in Second Opinions. Or he would say, uh, well, you know, in Ezekiel. So I was used to people uh, growing up trying to tease me about books of the Bible that weren't in the Bible. So we're in the middle of an elders meeting, and one of the elders uh, turned to me and said, hey, you know, we've never done a, a series on Zechariah. And immediately I thought, that is John the Baptist's dad. There is not a book in the Bible called Zechariah. I said, I'm not falling for that. Falling for what? There is not a book in the Bible called Zechariah. He's like, yeah, there is. You're our pastor. <laughs> they have, they've harassed me since then. So I became an expert on Zechariah since that moment a couple of years ago. And today as we, we jump into String of Pearls in Mark chapter 1, there is going to be a string of pearls of wisdom coming from the Old Testament, specifically from Zechariah, that are pivotal to understanding what Mark is explaining in the first chapter. So we're going to start today, and I'm going to string some pearls together of different pearls of wisdom from the Old Testament and then we're going to see how references to those passages are constantly being strung together uh, by the writer today. So we're going to go over to our Bible and look at some of the pearls together. We're going to grab our first pearl of wisdom, and it is coming from Zechariah chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. So I've got these in random order, so let me see if I can find uh, where Zechariah 3, 1 and 2 is. There's the first one. Zechariah 3, 1 and 2. It says this. Then he showed Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to oppose him. So notice the angel of the Lord. Whenever in the Old Testament, they reference not a angel of the Lord, but the angel of the Lord. It's almost always talking about the pre-incarnate Jesus. In fact, even here's an example where they call the angel the Lord. So the Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you. So it's interesting that you have God the Father and you have this angel of the Lord called Lord. So you have the Trinity even being hinted at here. But here's the main thing we see in Zechariah. The Lord is the one that rebukes Satan. So even the angel of the Lord calls upon God to rebuke him. So power to rebuke the evil forces of, of uh, darkness comes from God himself. So keep that in mind. All right, let's grab another pearl. All right, this one is from Genesis Chapter 24, verse 5. So in Genesis 24, verse 5, we see these words. If you're with us two years ago, we went through the life of Abraham. And there's a moment that the father wants to find a bride for the son. So he sends out his representative to go to a far off land to say to this bride, Will you come follow me? And by doing so, marry the bride, marry the groom. And the phrase he uses specifically is, perhaps the woman will not follow me to this land. The phrase follow me is used twice in the Old Testament. This is one. There's another string of pearl I'll just tell you about. We won't grab another piece of it in a few moments. So, and I, I talked about two years ago that that is an example of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that the Father sends out his Holy Spirit to the bride, which is the church, and says, will you follow and become the bride of Christ? That's also going to be alluded to today. Let's grab another uh, pearl of wisdom. Oh, we're back in Zechariah, it looks like. Zechariah 3, verses 6 to 8. So 3, 6 to 8. Another reference that's going to occur today. Let's see if I can find that one. There it is. So here's that angel again that we got introduced to a few moments ago. The angel of the Lord admonished Joshua, which is Yeshua, the same name as Jesus in the New Testament, saying, Thus says the Lord God of hosts, if you walk in my ways, 
If you keep my command, then you shall also judge my house and likewise have charge of my courts. I will give you places to walk among those who stand here. Hear, O Joshua, the high priest, you and your companions who sit before you, for they are a wondrous sign. Okay, so he's saying, when the Messiah comes, he is going to, there's going to be a wondrous sign. I am going to bring forth my servant, the branch. The branch is referenced several times in the Bible, but specifically in Zechariah. That when the branch comes, when the Messiah comes, when my servant comes, he will rebuke Satan, and then he will be the branch. All right, let's grab one more. All right, another Zechariah. This time it's Zechariah 3, 4, and 5. So this is the verse right between these two. So it says in Zechariah 3, 4, and 5, there it is. Joshua, so after Satan is rebuked, Joshua is clothed with filthy garments. Now keep in mind, this is the high priest. I mean, this guy was the holiest of holy guys, and he's clothed with filthy garments. Even he is not cleansed before God. He was standing before the angel, so Jesus incarnate, Pre-incarnate, and he answered and spoke those things who stood before him, saying, Take away the filthy garments from him. And he said to him, See, I have removed your iniquity from you. I will clothe you with rich robes. I said, Let them put a clean turban on his head. And they put a clean turban upon his head, and they put clothes upon him, and the angel of the Lord stood by. So Satan will be rebuked. You will have this exchange of, of filthy clothes of sin for righteous, clean, rich robes of purity from God. And then it will be coming in the time of the branch. So here's a few of the references we need to understand as we jump into the book of Mark. As we do that, I think the main theme we're going to see is this. Our alignment is determined by our amazement. When we want to align our thoughts, our behavior, our, our, our heart our feelings toward God, we need to know that we naturally align ourselves to things we're amazed in. That's on the good side and on the bad side. For example, if you are uh, amazed by the power and adrenaline rush of revenge, you find yourself constantly aligning yourself to thinking about what they did or didn't do and how you're going to get them back. The more amazed you are at what they did, the more you align yourself to thinking and feeling about that. If you're amazed by performance and competition, you find yourself aligning your behaviors, your activities, your habits, your, your recreation to, I want to get better at performing. If you're amazed by beauty, you might obsess or align yourself over beauty, whether it's architectural beauty or whether it's how you look. You're going to constantly be thinking about it because that's the most important thing in your heart. However, on the other side, if you're amazed by God's beauty, if you're amazed by his faithfulness, you're going to say, well, God was so faithful to me, I want to align myself and be faithful to others. So instead of saying, well, I ought to think that premarital sex is wrong, I say, because God is faithful to me, I want to be faithful to whoever God has for me. My amazement determines my alignment. When I'm amazed by God's forgiveness of me, I then align myself to begin to forgive other people. Because how could I not forgive others the way God's forgiven me? So in this passage, God... The writer, Mark, is going to try and get us amazed by Jesus. Because if we get amazed by the beauty of his holiness, we'll find ourselves aligning ourselves to who he is. So we're going to get three questions today to determine where we're out of alignment and how the amazement of God can bring us into alignment with him. The first question is this. Will I, will you, align myself, who I am, to his mission? 
I have to confess that all too often I'm trying to get God to align himself to my mission. If you listen to my prayers, it sounds something like this. Me, 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 me. Rather than saying, you, 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 you. God, what do you want and how can I align myself to you? So I think a fundamental question when we follow Christ is, am I amazed at who he is enough that I want to be part of his mission? Jesus is walking by the Sea of Galilee. He saw Simon and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea. And they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Follow me. Come on mission with me. You're business people. They had a fishing company. He says, I want you to take the same skills that made you good at business, and I want to use that to make a kingdom difference, to align those skills that have been good in the business world, and I want you to use those to be strategic about advancing my kingdom. And that phrase, follow me, like I said, is mentioned twice in the Old Testament, and that will be important in a second. Where's Jesus at? <coughs> He's in Bethsaida. I got a chance to visit there last October. This would be the town he would have walked into, minus the sign. But this would have been the area he walked up to. And right next to that sign is a path from ancient days. So Jesus for sure would have walked up this path, coming along the side, into this very small village called Bethsaida. In fact, that, that uh, rock setup says the fisherman's house. So this is almost for sure the, if not one of the, next to each other, it's a real small town, the home of Andrew and Simon, where he walked up. As he came around the edge, he would have seen their home. Now, it's right now, here's what's left of it. Here are the rocks that have fallen apart. But this was a fisherman's home, and right next to it was a uh, home of a, a winemaker. So this was a, an entrepreneurial business community where folks were making wine that they were selling and that they were making, um, they were fishermen as well. In fact, in its day, this is what the fisherman's house would have looked like. So this is the rubble of it, but it would have looked like that. They would have a place to hang their nets up in this area here after they came in from the fishing. They would have you know, had a place to eat and stay, and they would have different rooms around the edges. This is the fisherman's house. This is the little village of Bethsaida. <clears throat> As you go a little farther, you see some rubble, and this one was not laid out like a fisherman's home. This was a winemaker's home. So this would have looked like this during the day, and that's what the winemaker's home looked like. So again, on a scale of the time they lived, these were probably upper middle class folks, entrepreneurial business people, and Jesus came into this small community, and he's going to at least pick a third of his disciples from this little bitty town of business owners that he says, I want to use you to change the world here in Bethsaida. Again, let me look at this, uh, this phrase again. So Jesus says, I want you to come and follow me, and I will take your skills already fishing and make you fishers of men. Now, there's only two references to follow me in the Old Testament. One, I already mentioned, was from Genesis, was the idea of a father trying to find a bride for his son. And the question was, will you follow me and marry the groom you've never seen? It's the question you and I have today. Jesus comes to us. The Holy Spirit comes to us and says, will you follow the groom you've never seen, Jesus? I'll tell you about him. I'll explain what he's done for you. I'll tell you about his proposal on the cross. But at the end of the day, without seeing him, will you follow him? The second reference to follow me is an amazing one from one of my favorite passages in 2 Kings. If you don't know the, passage, the story, it goes like this. The Sumerians, uh, or the, uh, the, those from Samaria, so the Sumerians, they had come alongside the fortress that the Israelites were in. And they were going to bombard it, and they were going to attack it, and they were going to tear it down. 
And the king is scared to death. So he turns to Elisha and says, what are we going to do about that army out there? Elisha's a guy taken care of. He walks up. The Samarians are just about to attack them and kill them, the enemies of Israel. And he says, oh, God, blind them. Boom. They're all blind. They're walking around. Oh, my goodness. There's just total chaos. They're grabbing onto each other's shoulders, trying to find out where they're at. Elisha goes outside of the gate of the city, walks up to one of them and says, hey, I will help you. Follow me. Well, they don't know who it is. Hey, I found somebody to help us. So all of the army follows Elisha into the city they were going to attack. He gathers them all together. Now the Israeli army is around them with swords and shields. They've disarmed them. And he says, oh, God, open their eyes. Boom. Oh, no. We're inside of our enemy's camp. Who said we should follow this guy? And the king says, what should we do with these people? Our enemies are going to kill us. Elisha says, don't kill them. Feed them, clothe them, and send them on their way. So they love their enemies. They care for their enemies, the Sumerians, and they send them on their way. And this will be the text Jesus will use when he tells the story of the good Samaritan. How to love your enemies, how to clothe them, how to take care of them, and how to treat your enemies differently than they treat you. Every parable Jesus has is coming out of a pearl of wisdom from the Old Testament. And this phrase, follow me, alludes to the two. What does it mean to follow Jesus? It means to have a radical generosity toward those who can never give you anything in return. To follow Jesus means to love your enemies. It means to care for those who are very different from you. Follow me. Well, here's where he's at. This is the view from Bethsaida looking over. You see the Sea of Galilee um, on my map here is where the blue is, but it used to be bigger. You see the section. So this is Bethsaida up here. And so at this point, there's, you're not near the Sea of Galilee anymore if you're in Bethsaida. But back in Jesus' day, there was a lagoon, so you would have seen the water somewhere around here behind the tree line where they would put in their fishing um, boats and make their way over to the Sea of Galilee. But imagine you're probably a teenage boy. Well, maybe not Simon. He was married at the time. But certainly the other disciples, we think, were mostly older teenagers. And Jesus says to you, will you realign yourself to my mission? He walks you up to the edge of this spot and says, the unknown is before you. You've got to leave what you know. But I'm going to use these teenagers from this little podunk little town, a quarter the size of Newtown, to turn the world upside down. I think many times God invites us to a broader horizon. And we stand on the edge and we say, but I'm comfortable here. He says, I want to invite you into generosity. I want to invite you into forgiveness. I want to invite you into a lavish, fear-free lifestyle. I want to invite you into a worry, uh, uh, breaking free from worry and addiction. And we're like, oh, but I'm comfortable here. As you stand on the horizon, Jesus asks you the same question. Will you follow me? And it's not a question that you pray once and you accept Christ in your life. It's a daily question of will I today, again, choose to follow him in my attitudes, in my thoughts, in my behaviors? Am I amazed at who he is enough that I trust that his way is the best? The second question is not will I realign myself, but how quickly do I realign myself? Remember, Mark's favorite phrase is immediately. And here it comes again, twice. So how long did it take for them to follow him, to realign themselves? They immediately left their nets and followed him. He had gone a little farther from there. He saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother. And also, they were in a boat mending their nets. And immediately, 
he called them and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with their hired servants. And again, this is just striking to me that they are so amazed at Jesus and his teaching and what he offers that they're like, whatever I got, as good as it is, isn't nearly as good as what I would have with him. And they immediately followed him. They immediately realigned themselves to his mission. Now, before we touch on that a little bit further, I want you to notice a few things. Again, this is another businessman. He not only has a, a fishing industry, he's got enough money to have his own boat. He's got enough money to have his own nets. And his two sons can run off with Jesus, and he has enough employees that he can keep the business going. So again, Jesus, I think we get the idea that the disciples are sort of these castaway, worthless, uh, couldn't cut it in the real world. These are professional business people that Jesus says, I want to use you to change the world. So here's the question that I think wrestles with our heart. How quickly do I realign myself to God's mission? For me, it's definitely not immediately. There's definitely a gap between what I know is the right thing to do and why I implement it. How quickly do you confess? Oh, I know I was wrong. How long does it take you to swallow your pride and actually apologize to someone? How quickly does it take for you to know? God tells us to be encouragers, to you to align yourself, to actually start appreciating and encouraging other people. How long does it take you, and when the Bible tells you, do all things without grumbling and complaining, to actually start saying, wow, God, I need to be incredibly joyful. I need to start practicing the discipline of joy and celebration. How quickly, when God says, let me tell you, if you will live a generous life, it is going to be better to give than receive. Right. How long does it take you to align to really believing his way is the best? I want to, in my life, move toward a quicker, a a, a faster, a smaller gap between what I know is the right thing to do and when I align myself to it. What's amazing, I think, about the disciples is that they were able to do this in such a powerful way. When you confess, God is willing to meet you where you're at. Let me show you what happens next in the passage. They went to Capernaum. And immediately, there's that word again, on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and taught. They were astonished at his teaching, just amazed. Oh, my goodness. This guy's teaching is amazing. I'll align my life to his life because I'm amazed by him. And he taught them as one having authority, not like the scribes. We're going to tell you a little bit about that synagogue. So here he is in Bethsaida. He's going to make his way over here to Capernaum. And here in Capernaum is one of the largest synagogues in the whole area of Sea of Galilee. Massive synagogue. You get to walk through it. And it has one of the largest scroll rooms. Because remember, people didn't have access to the Bible. The place you got the Bible is you went to the synagogue. And so I went to several different synagogues. And they had very small scroll closets. This one was massive. This was the, the, the scroll box of scroll boxes. This was where they trained rabbis and philosophers and teachers all over the countryside. were right here in Capernaum. So Jesus came here regularly to dig into the the pearls of wisdom from the Old Testament, to study it, to teach it, and to pass it on to others. This was the place. So he gets to the synagogue. And what's amazing is that on his way, he leaves Bethsaida. Now, here's what's amazing about Bethsaida. So Bethsaida is this fishing village. They found several fishing anchors, like so, in that area. 
But if you dig down underneath the town of Bethsaida, where James and John and Peter and Andrew are from, they dug down a little bit further underneath the fisher's house and underneath the, uh, the wine dresser's house, and they found the ruins of an Old Testament city called Geshur. I mean, it's the exact same location. So we take you back to the Old Testament to Geshur. So Geshur, if you remember Absalom, Absalom rebels against his father. He runs off and he hides in Geshur. Well, Geshur ended up turning away from God in the Old Testament. So much so that they built a statue at the very front gates of the city to Baal. So that's what Baal looks like. That's a statue of Baal. See with his horns going up? So this city turned away from God and was, was used for Baal worship. God conquers, allows the Babylonians to destroy them, deports all of the Israelites for 70 years, and then the Persians allow them to return. As they return to Geshur, there's a group of folks who say, let's rebuild our city right on top of the ruins of a place that used to worship Baal. But let's make our commitment to realign ourselves quickly and teach our children and our grandchildren and ourselves the Bible, to love God and to love his word. And so a community that has at its bedrock Baal worship built on top of it a small fishing village, and they so taught their children to love God and love the Scripture that Jesus, of all the people he could pick, would come to this little bitty town built on top of a Baal worship community from the Old Testament and would choose four of his disciples. To me, that's powerful. Because I think when you dig down into the layers of all of our lives, there's a lot of junk down there. There's secrets in our past. There's things we'd be ashamed of in our past. There's times that we not only did not realign ourselves, that we actually aligned ourselves the opposite of God. And yet this story is a reminder that as God digs down into your life, whatever you've done, you can build on top of it. His grace allows you to realign yourself to him. And as you feel the pain of being out of his alignment, you say, oh, my goodness, it's better over here. There's more freedom over here. Humility is over here. Self-control is over here. Love is over here. Joy is over here. Peace is over here. I want to align myself to Jesus because his way is so much better, even if I have a history of Baal worship or rebellion against God. Well, in um, Bethsaida was a synagogue as well. They haven't found the whole thing, but they found this piece which was a decorative piece that would have sat on top of the synagogue where they taught people the scriptures and they taught these young men about them. So Jesus has left Bethsaida in that synagogue. He's now in another synagogue. He comes face to face with a man with an unclean spirit. Now, there was a man in the synagogue with an unclean spirit, and he cried out saying, let us alone. What have we to do with you, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come here to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, be quiet and come out of him. And now we begin to see the string of pearls. Jesus of Nazareth. The word Nazareth, as I mentioned last week, literally means Branchville. Jesus, the branch from Branchville, what are you doing here? Our first pearl. I know who you are, the Holy One of God, but Jesus rebuked him, Zechariah 3, only God can rebuke. Another claim that Jesus is God, because only God can rebuke Satan. And Jesus says, I rebuked him. And remember, the Messiah would come after 
The devil had been rebuked. The the clothing exchange from sinful clothes to clean clothes would happen after Satan had been rebuked. He says, be quiet, which actually comes from 2 Samuel, another pearl of wisdom I haven't mentioned yet. Come out of him, which sets up what happened in Zechariah 13, 2. It shall be in that day, says the Lord of hosts, that I will cut off the names of the idols from the land and they shall no longer be remembered. I will also cause the prophets and the unclean spirits to depart from the land. So Zechariah says, you want to know when the Messiah is coming? You'll see the branch. You want to know when the Messiah is coming? He'll rebuke the devil. You want to know when the Messiah is coming? He'll clean out unclean spirits. And Mark is saying, it's here, it's here, it's here. This is it. The branch is here. He's rebuking Satan. He's cleaning out the land. Forgiveness is coming. Clean clothes are coming. The kingdom is upon us. Everything we heard about, wondered about, wished upon, prayed for in Zechariah and in Genesis, it's here. He said, come and follow me. And that is what's occurring here in the passage. He says, the kingdom has come upon us. Which brings us to our third question. How amazed am I at who he is? And when the unclean spirit had convulsed and cried out with a loud voice, he came out of him. And they were all amazed. So that they questioned among themselves, saying, what is this? What new doctrine is this? For with authority he commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. John's favorite word again. And immediately his fame spread throughout all the region of Galilee. They're amazed at what he does. They're amazed at who he is. They're amazed at his ability to fulfill and communicate the Old Testament in a way that it comes alive. They're amazed at his ability to to live a life that is so worthy of living. They're like, man, I want that. I want that joy. I want that freedom. I had an amazing opportunity this week to speak at the St. Louis Mayor's Prayer Breakfast. So Beth and I went down there on Tuesday night and I spoke Wednesday. So they had about 1,500 people there on Wednesday. The civic leaders, the mayor of, of St. Louis was there. All of the political leaders and business leaders were there, many of which had brought unconvinced friends. The night before, they were going to interview Beth and I about our journey of adopting Quinn. And Beth does not speak publicly. I've invited her to tell her story many times and she's like, I know. But she decided to do it. It's her first time doing it. And so we got interviewed Tuesday night, and she just did an amazing job. And they said, now, the main audience here, there's a lot of Christians, but we have brought our our unconvinced spouses, our unconvinced friends, and we want to hear a real story about how God works. So we got interviewed, and my wife just did an amazing job of talking about how God has worked in the midst of the ups and the downs. And the next morning on Wednesday, I'd heard that many of the leaders in the community were not only unconvinced, but antagonistic toward the Bible, toward Jesus. And I had the absolute privilege of standing before 1,500 plus people and trying to tell them why they should be amazed at Jesus, even if they're not amazed by his followers. That even though his followers have done a terrible job of of demonstrating his love, his care, his concern, his forgiveness, I got to paint a picture of the beauty of who Jesus was. One particular guy uh, who was uh, there, I knew was unconvinced. He was a a big figure there in in St. Louis. I watched him in his seat. He came when I first came in. He, he gave me a "Hey, how's it going?" Nice, yeah. I'm supposed to be polite, and then he sat in his seat like this while I'm talking. And I began to talk about who Jesus is. And I knew he wasn't a fan of Christians, and he was there because he was trying to connect with the business community. As I began to describe 
the, the reality of Jesus, the reality of his forgiveness, how that freedom comes into your life. I would turn around every five minutes into the talk. I'd seem like this. He began to smile. He look. I thought, I got this guy who's unconvinced and, and, and really is got a distaste towards Christians. He, he's, he's leaning forward more and more as I'm talking. And I tell you, that will be my picture forever of this event is because somebody who didn't even like the Bible or Jesus or Christians began to hear about our Savior, began to hear about what he could do, got to hear about what he does in your life. And he'd get more and more interested. I got an incredible privilege at the end of that talk to tell folks, God has what you need. If you need wisdom, he has it. If you need compassion, he has it. If you need extra strength, he has it. If you need forgiveness, he has it. And for us as a church, that's what we do. The reason we have two services, they're both about amazement. We're in the amazement business. We're amazed at how the Bible is woven together in such a way. Who could write this stuff but God? We're amazed at Jesus and his expert knowledge of the Old Testament, the way he fulfilled prophecies, sometimes dozens, sometimes hundreds of years old. We're amazed by it, that it's true, it's real, and it works. That's our equipping service. But we also have an exploring service where we want to convince people who are unconvinced that you you don't even believe it, but you'd want it to be true. It's amazing what happens when you get free. It's amazing what happens when you tap into his mercy. It's amazing what happens when you find God's patience. Our alignment is determined by our amazement. So I think here's the takeaway for us. We've been giving out this habits pamphlet, and that may be a way for you of digging deeper into the Bible. Say, I need some kind of system to just get myself praying and connecting and meditating on God. We've been passing it out for the last couple of weeks. If not, there's some ones out in the foyer if you want to grab that. But here's my challenge for us. Let's increase our alignment with Him. But don't do that by trying harder. Do that by being more amazed. Be amazed at how kindly he speaks to you be amazed that god would speak and sing songs over you encourage you and love you despite what you've done wrong and when you're amazed by his encouragement of you you start saying well how can i not want to encourage others increase your amazement dig into the bible dig into these old testament scriptures be amazed that he is who he says he was secondly let's increase the time let's increase the time on how quickly we realign ourselves to Him. Let's go faster. Let's not take 10 days before we apologize. Let's not take 20 years before we uproot that habit. Let's not take six months before we finally make that phone call. Let's instead increase how quickly we get in realignment with Him. Not perfection, but progress. Let's get closer to our Savior because we believe in His way of living. When I went on our trip to Israel, one thing that amazed me was that Jesus was such a genius. And he's always been my savior since I was very, very young. He's always been a source of wisdom and strength. But when you see how he handles the Old Testament, when you see how he fulfills the Old Testament, you say, this guy is a genius. Speaking with the convinced, he's a genius. Speaking with the unconvinced, he's a genius. He can tell a story of the parable of the Good Samaritan, and it just on its own face is an amazing story that challenges us all. And then you dig in deeper and you find out he's exegeting second kings, and you're like, this guy's a stinking genius. Every one of Jesus' parables is exegeting an Old Testament passage, and we don't know the Scripture well enough to know what he's talking about. So I want to challenge you. Fall in love with the Word. Get to know who he is. Dig deeper into the Scripture, and you will increase your amazement, 
Therefore, you increase your alignment. You'll begin to do it more quickly as you become obsessed and overwhelmed with the beauty of his holiness. Let's pray. Father, thank you for who you are. Thank you for what you've done. I ask that you continue to work in our hearts and our lives. Teach us how we can talk to our friends in a way that draws them and woos them toward a knowledge of who you are. And God, I confess that there is a huge gap between when you convict me and when I obey. And God, we want to be a people who are committed to shortening that gap. We want to hear your Holy Spirit whispering to us, follow me. It'll be better. Follow me. It'll be worth it. Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. We'll see you next week as we continue String of Pearls. Thank <clears throat>